Welcome to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. It's a podcast about the nuts and bolts of life in rural Australia. The good, the bad and the beautiful. Do you hunt out organic produce? If you say yes, how do you know it's organic? If you say no, why don't you buy it? Certification is a critical issue for the industry and it's one that's been on the agenda for some 30 years. The organics industry has been a winner out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Sales are on the increase and the industry is on course to double in value over the next three years. But the biggest challenge facing the organics industry is not competition from conventionally produced food, rather certified versus uncertified organic produce. The Chief Executive Officer of Australian Organics Limited, Nikki Ford, says domestic regulation is critical if the industry is to maintain its integrity. The organic industry has actually um, done very well during the pandemic. I was actually um, just speaking to a retailer even yesterday uh, where he has told me that his business is up 50 to 60% still since the beginning. Uh, I know operators are certainly telling us the same thing. Um, wholesalers, I've heard 20 to 30% growth, maintain growth since the panic buying. So, And this isn't an Australian um, anomaly. This is actually a global um, uh, re- report that these things are happening. So we know even before pandemic, um, two-thirds of all organic consumers came into consuming it because they had a health problem. We're in the middle of the largest health crisis um, in living memory. Yeah. So there's not a, it's not difficult to draw a line between consumption of a regular pattern versus consumption now. Um, UK, USA, other European countries have very similar reports um, around the, the growth trajectory. We know that obviously people are looking for things that will continue to maintain their high level of health. So having less residual chemicals in the diet or having a healthier perceived option is where the organic fills the consumer need and demand. Um, the other component is we know that most everyone's been in shutdown. So, you know, there's a lot of products on the market in the, in the supermarket that are a premium cut. People are trading up because um, they're not going out, they're experimenting, and therefore um, that maintain that is maintaining a high level of demand. But in the new norm, do you think that's going to be maintained? How can you maintain that? Well, historically that has maintained after. So other epidemics that have happened across the last 20 to 30 years have demonstrated there's at least been another 15 to 20% maintenance of the level of increase mm. for demand after pandemic. Uh, so we believe that will continue. Um, we're also in the process of working with the government on um, uh, implementing a domestic regulation. What is this domestic regulation? Because my understanding is there's a national standard. There are six different bodies that... Uh, certify organic so really what's organic and what's not organic yeah so uh, the best place to start is to back at the beginning so back in uh, 92 when the australian government um, the department of agriculture aquest at the time developed the standard um, they um, wrote it though in fact they were probably one of the first countries outside of europe to create an organic standard for a country um, we created it implemented it very successfully into the export so anything going outside of australia that's claiming to be organic just organic is required by federal law to be certified so therefore they have to have a certification mark right you've got six different certifiers you've got biodynamic acos nasa 
um, and, and a range of other ones. Yeah. So that's not dissimilar to all around the world. So in the UK, there's about seven as well. So they're, they're a service provider. They, they all um, accredit to the national standard at the basis, which is owned by the, Depart- the, mm. the Department of Agriculture and the government. So that standard was very successfully implemented in the export rules. And is that recognised recognised in trade agreements that we have with the United States or with China or with Japan? Not currently, and the reason why is because it was recommended on the announcement of that program in '92 to be implemented in the domestic market, and, and that's when Simon Crean introduced clean and green. I remember it well. Well, um, unfortunately, the application to the food, the National Food Authority at the time, which pre Fazans, um, wasn't allowed, and it got withdrawn, and it's never been. Re, um, uh, discussed since then. So for 27, nearly 28 years, the, the Australian organic market domestically has got greyer and greyer and greyer. Now, what we are requesting is simply that the export standard, the national standard, become the mandatory domestic standard. Now, I understand that the Federal Ag Minister, uh, Little Proud, has agreed to have discussions. How far away are you from having a national standard for organics? Well, look, um, we're working with government on a regular basis around this, and at the moment um, I'm not able to give you any further detail around it other than it is being discussed, um, and um, Minister Littleproud um, has provided a level of support for that discussion, and we're hoping uh, that we'll be able to um, you know, discuss that a little bit more in the not-too-distant future. What would that mean for the industry if there were one standard? Uh, an enormous um, – it would mean an enormous amount. So um, from a con- consumer confidence perspective um, it would completely demystify what organic means because if you're using the word organic it would mean you needed to be certified Uh, and it means that you would be going through a rigorous standard there would be annual audits you'd only be allowed to use particular inputs it would mean certified organic Uh, from an industry operator perspective they'd be getting the credibility they deserve you know rigorous audits annually complying to specific standards is um it is an arduous task, essentially. There are high, a lot of benefits out of that for producers and, and um, for it. However, when people are simply claiming organically grown, it really does cheat the, the, um, the diligent certified operator out of their, um, you know, their rigorous process they've been implementing. Really, the biggest challenge for the industry is not conventionally produced food versus organic food. It's actually what's truly organic or certified organic versus what just says it's organic. Now, why is that the big debate? What, what's the problem there? Well, look, we will never get in a discussion around organic versus conventional because every farmer has the right to farm in the manner in which they choose. What we do get annoyed about is that consumers get cheated at the register with fake organics. What's fake organic? Someone claiming organic when they're not actually certified. So how do you know that the, um, if you're picking up a product that's saying it's organically grown but it hasn't been certified, how do you know it's actually organic? At the moment, you don't. You don't. So that's what we're asking for is just clarity. So all these people have been playing a premium through the COVID pandemic and paying more for so-called organic produce might have been 
not buying organic stuff at all. Well, correct. Um, if it's not certified organic and you can't see that it's certified organic, and you should ask at your retailer if it is, um, if it doesn't have a mark or a certification mark on it, um, if you're going to pay more for it, you should be asking for the certification mark. And if it's not there, then you should be questioning why. And if they can't answer it, then I'd be walking away. I've done that multiple times. Um, I'm uh, you know, an organic um, consumer myself and have been for about a decade, and I will walk out of a store if no one can validate the certification and go and buy something somewhere else. So what would you look for? Well, look, the BUD is the most recognised certification mark in Australia. Uh, over 50% of consumers um, know that that is the mark. Uh, there are multiple marks on the um, market, but none come close to the BUD. Um, that's a similar process that's in a number of different countries. The UK, EU, for example, all have multiple different marks. Um, if you were to get the national standard, all of those operators, as, all those certification bodies, as they already do, comply to the national standard, um, but you need to make sure you look for a certification mark. But if you look for a BUD, which is the most common, you'll be sure to find it. So do you reckon you're going to get it through, one national standard? Because I think Australia is the only country out of 193 that doesn't have a single domestic standard. Uh, well, look, we have the, we don't have a consistent domestic standard. So it is my absolute personal and professional goal to achieve this um, for the industry. It's um, an enormous opportunity uh, for agriculture. It's an enormous opportunity for the economy. Um, it's a great, um, uh, you know, this should have been done 27 years ago and unfortunately it wasn't. Um, however, we're back at the table now with a lot of great discussion. We have the ability to contribute to the $100 billion target as set by um, the agricultural industry for 2030 and organic could play an enormous part of that. Um, we know overseas in the EU, for example, you know, they have a target of 25% organic agriculture by 2030. So they see it as a great opportunity. We believe it's also a great opportunity here in Australia. Mm. And do you think you'll get there shortly? As in the domestic regulation? I'd like to think so. We've already been working on it for nearly two years. <laughs> Certification is expensive, so it'll be interesting to watch that debate to see whether domestic regulation does come into force in the organics industry. You're listening to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. People love goals. The organics industry is on target to double in value over the next three years and the National Farmers Federation wants to double the number of women in leadership positions by 2030. Nikki Ford is a graduate of the National Farmers Federation's Diversity in Leadership programs. Nikki says she's learned a lot, built some great networks and believes that mentoring is a key to achieving that 2030 goal of doubling the number of women CEOs in agriculture. The program was actually in its third year. Um, Fiona Simpson, the chair of um, National Farmers Federation, created this program to help drive one of their key outcomes for the 2030 roadmap, which is to have um, more women in agricultural leadership. And the program itself uh, is designed um, for 10 to 12 women each year who get the opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one mentorship program. And uh, you also get the ability to network with other women in leadership. So it was um, an, an honour to be chosen out of a group of women all across Australia. And it was an absolute pleasure to meet so many other women in leadership roles who are, who are looking for, I guess, a bit of guidance and a bit of support. Because often when you're... Um, 
uh, in leadership roles yourself, it, it, you're often um, guiding people and not getting a lot of it. So I thought it was a great opportunity um, to help me in my leadership journey in agriculture. My understanding is that about a third of the uh, people who work in agriculture are women, but only less than 3% are in CEO positions around Australia. Is that the motivating force to get more women in leadership positions? Yeah, absolutely. So it's the NFF's goal to double that by 2030. Um, so while that's still a very small percentage, uh, I think that's an enormous feat. Uh, I know Fiona um, herself has talked about um, just the impact that the um, program's had so far. So the program itself has a number of sponsors, um, different large uh, agricultural industry associations that also uh, contribute their own own, um, uh, target so that they're growing their um, female leadership um, percentages within each of their organisations as well. So it's not just for the mentors, mentees, it's actually for all the different partners that get involved with the NFF as well. Why do we need more women in leadership roles? Well, look, I think there's actually some interesting studies that have been um, talked about globally where, um, you know, women can be, um, uh, women leaders can be attributed to um, different, um, uh, I guess, proactive discussions in leadership, um, often demonstrating a level of empathy and understanding, uh, not to say men can't do that, but I'm just saying that's certainly been studies to contribute it. There was an interesting fact that was um, told to us by the uh, um, ambassador for um, gender equality uh, in our last week in the program that said that um, female CEOs um, attribute an extra 5% of value to businesses in the, um, in the commercial space. So I thought that was an interesting fact that I hadn't heard before, but certainly um, women Women in leadership roles obviously create a level of different discussion at the table and I think it's important to have that balanced dialogue going on. I know there are many facets to getting more women in leadership positions, but I can think of a few different things. And Fiona Simpson, I think, said herself that um, women are their own worst enemies in terms of promoting themselves. So that's one thing. Is it training too and is it actually educating blokes that women actually have a, a role to play in their organisation. There seems to be many facets to this whole issue. Yeah, look, I think it's a complex uh, matter and uh, I think it all starts with the individual female and their journey. So I know, uh, uh, look, I'm the mother of a beautiful four-year-old little girl and I know when I fell pregnant, uh, I was in a leadership role and I'm one of my very closest male friends said to me, uh, oh, gee, you'll have to, your career will have to take a back step, which I thought was quite alarming um, and uh, I, I looked at it and I remember saying, well, why should it? And um, I think that's one of the biggest things is it is a very prehistoric attitude that a woman has to be the primary carer for a child uh, and also that a woman has to take that back step. Yeah, obviously that is important that, you know, family does come first, but I'm very uh, lucky in the fact that I have a very equal balanced partnership with uh, with my fiancé, Steve, that um, we've always believed that a village raises children and it's important that both partners contribute to that. So uh, on my journey, uh, I was really fortunate that I had that support, but I think women often... Um, think that they have to make a choice um, and and have to stay home and have to be seen to be the primary carer. And I think one of the other challenges is we need to um, have a think about, well, how do we support women getting back into the workforce faster? You know, whether that is a very topical comment at the moment around childcare support uh, and also even having the ability to have paternity leave as opposed to maternity leave. I, I know um, an old colleague of mine I ran into a couple of years ago, he's very lucky to work for 
we were very lucky to work for a very large corporation that had a very similar policy, well, the same policy for men as women when children were born. And if your wife was the larger, you know, um, financial um, contributor to your home, then the male could be able to take the paternity leave. And I think all of these things add up to the opportunity of women being able to take a step forward into the leadership role is knowing they have this support network and it's not an expectation for them to stay at home. Do you think that... Do you think that COVID-19 has really put a setback to those goals of increasing, doubling the number of women in leadership roles by 2030? No, actually, I think it, there's been some great examples of how it's been a positive. Uh, I've seen um, lots of men at home looking after their children, uh, and I've also seen the flexibility of working from home. You know, I uh, am very blessed in my career to have always flown in and out of large, um, you know, leadership roles. And I think having your businesses understanding that you don't have to turn up and face up to be at work doing your job is also another step forward for women in leadership roles because um, you can still work from home and be productive as long as you have a really good you know plan in place. Um, but you know employers um, need to think about how that could work long term for everyone, um, whether the males at home looking after the children or the female. How did the course, the program help you in that area? Because you're working with 12 other women from completely different areas in agriculture. You're working with big companies that have made a commitment to uh, promote leadership of women in their organisations. What did you get out of it? Yeah, look, it was an interesting year. I imagine NFF would have found it different this year as well because of COVID. We weren't able to get face-to-face. We did catch up every fortnight on webinars and I certainly established a couple of really great relationships with the ladies in the program and we all got along well. It was just obviously distance that created maybe not as um, strong a relationship as previous years, but we all intend to continue to stay in touch and we'll catch up physically face-to-face next year. Um, Look, I think you get out of the program whatever you put into it. And for me, um, I've certainly learned a lot about how um, women probably perceive themselves in leadership roles. I guess you only have your own version of what it's like. For me, um, being a part of the program has certainly opened up a lot of dialogue with additional stakeholders across industry. Being recognised as part of that program within the NFF framework has certainly helped um, organic um, create a profile and a level of understanding I think because often organic is seen as a cottage industry um, when you start talking and telling people it's a 2.6 billion dollar industry people scratch their heads and go wow I didn't realize it was that big because we talk about a whole industry, not individual commodities uh, which people often talk about but for me what I got most out of it is having um, a network of women who um, I feel like uh, understand the process and the journey that you're on. Um, my mentor, Alison Penfold, who was um, who now I would consider one of my friends as well as one of my um, uh, colleague, industry colleagues, was um, uh, I loved Alison's style. She's very straightforward and it's exactly how I am and she really challenged the way I thought about a couple of things, especially um, on my development. I've never worked in an industry body before. Um, my, being the CEO of Australian Organic is my first membership-based association role. I've always worked in the corporate arena. So coming into this space has uh, been quite um, a, a skill development opportunity and she certainly has a lot of experience from being the CEO of Australian Life's export so we uh i remember having many conversations with alison when i was doing the country hour over the live export band what does a mentor do for a mentee look 
having that time each fortnight to workshop one, I guess, where you're going um, and what you, how you want to get there, or even just ask questions to. Um, Alison and I, we had our own, I guess, script to a lot of it. We did work through a lot of the notes in the program, uh, but a lot of the dialogue we had was really sort of seeking to understand the information sort of behind the questions we were asking. And I really liked that about our approach because it wasn't just standard to a script, which I think most of the program at our mentees and mentors did. Um, for me, having someone, a formal mentor, it's the first time I've ever had someone. Uh, and often when you get into a leadership role, people may think you have all the answers and you certainly don't. And I, and I will always proclaim never to have all the answers. It's certainly a learning curve. So having a mentor to be able to either just even bounce an idea off, pick the phone up um, and say, what do you think about this? And then get back to the, you know, the scripted program that you're working on around your goal setting and, and being able to deliver that. I had rather robust goals that were probably, um, you know, on the pathway of what we're trying to achieve at Australian Organic, which is around the domestic regulation piece so my goals essentially weren't ticked off but however what I what we did achieve is understanding what I needed to put in place to be able to achieve that because I wasn't going to achieve that in the six-month program it's it's going to be uh, a good little while before that gets put in place but now being able to talk through that plan with Alison and be able to talk through my, um, I guess, individual uh, professional evolution, I now have a really clear understanding of how I can um, provide support for that positive outcome. I think Alison would have also been really good at dealing with anger management <laughs> because she would have been hounded so many times about questions about the live export ban and she just bounced them off every time and she's really good at that. Dealing with outrage, I think she calls it. <laughs> <laughs> Anger medic. <laughs> yes. Yes, she um and I think that was one of the greatest um parts of the program with her is how do you um work uh, with um people to understand and uncover what the true challenge or the the obstacle that they have um, or the concern they have and be able to come to a point where you're either delivering a positive outcome or being able to get to a point where you're talking with them and there's the, the outrages and I guess the major part of the conversation. So yeah, we had a lot of dialogue around that. How important is it for young women who are in agriculture, not necessarily in the CEO position, but to have mentors, do you think? Oh, enormously important. I think uh, being able to speak to someone around some of the challenges a number of the guest speakers that we had um throughout the program and i i um uh can remember one uh, we were talking about you know and it's not even just young women i think it's just the way you go through you know uh, women can often be um taken back by anger especially if it's coming from a male um in an environment that is you know what they just recede into themselves yeah that, that's often i guess the case of women unless you're in this place where you feel really confident about delivering it and i know um some of the ladies that delivered speeches to us talked about how to deal a lot with that and i think when you're a young person regardless of whether you're an agri i've always worked in predominantly male dominated industries um being able to back yourself i think or in your position is probably a skill that you learn over time but ultimately if you've got that ability to talk to someone around how to develop that at a younger age I think that's really important. What about if the journey that you've planned doesn't go well I mean it doesn't go in the direction that you want it to go how does a mentor sort of help you navigate that sort of space? Well I think um, all journeys don't go the way you plan <laughs> I just 
start with. Uh, I think you've got to be able to understand, um, and that is part of the journey, I think, of leadership and, and growth in anything you're doing is well, understanding where the pathway can be taken and being prepared for that alteration of journey. Uh, I know that, you know, r- responding to change is couldn't be more relevant now than ever before in our world because we're in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis and the world is is never going to be the same way it was as much as we think we could go back to normal we never probably will go back to the normal we once had so managing change I think is an ongoing process for everyone in any any part of their life Um, I think uh, being able to step back and talk to a mentor to take a wider view of what's actually going on and getting to the root of the issue as to what that um, understand that difficulty with change may be is the best pathway not trying to resist change but being able to take a moment to step back maybe talk through what some of those emotional attachments to that resistance to change may be i thrive on change i love being i love challenge i think um i uh, loathe change (laughs) well i think what do you like about change uh, i think i like the fact that you're um you need to be agile and you need to think outside of the box all the time. And, and I, I have a, a really close friend of mine. Um, I've known her for over 20 years and she'll laugh if she listens to this and hears what I say, but I still remember her. She's a really successful um, woman in the fashion industry uh, in Sydney. And, um, she never stopped believing in herself in a whole journey in her business. She's a self-made, um, you know, m- you know, w- well-made brand now. And um, she, I remember saying to me, don't ever get comfortable. Put tax in your bed. <laughs> Don't get comfortable. And uh, I've told her that recently and she laughed. She said, I can't remember, believe you actually remembered that. But um, I still remember thinking you should never get too comfortable because change is is, is going to always happen. And so you've got to learn to be able to sit back, review your, your way in which you're going and, and, and carry on with the next possible best approach. And what would you just say to young women who wanted to get into agricultural industries? What how should they focus their journey surround yourself by the people that have the same values and i think that's any any industry it doesn't have to be specifically ag but i think on my professional journey when i've been at my very best has been when i've been around the people that have the same value you may not agree on a topic but you have the same values and i think um having good robust dialogue when you don't agree on topic um actually adds to your ability to learn so i think for young women believe yourself you know if you've got a passion go for it um i've always been um i've never really thought of myself as i guess a female as such i think um for me um i've always just loved what i do in every um role i've ever had and i think i've been enormously supported um you know by my parents and then also you know in in the the relationship i have now to achieve some of those goals and i think so surround your people surround yourself with people that have the same values nikki ford chief executive officer of Australian Organics Limited. You've been listening to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. Subscribe on your favourite podcast app and leave me a review. Music was composed and presented by Luke Aidney. (laughs) 